0: Hi, We the People friends. This episode originally aired on our companion podcast, Live at the National Constitution Center. That's where we share the audio feeds of the live constitutional conversations that we host as online videos at America's Town Hall. So if you're enjoying We the People, please check out Live at the National Constitution Center. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with a new episode of We the People. Now on to the show.
1: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Following the 2020 election, NCC President Jeffrey Rosen was joined in a live online program by four experts from across the ideological spectrum. They considered what the election and its aftermath shows us about the state of American democracy today and where we're headed. Here's Jeff to get the
0: conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's edition of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution, and we'll begin the program as we begin all Constitution Center programs by reciting the inspiring mission statement of the Constitution Center to gird ourselves for the discussion ahead. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a non-partisan basis. I'm thrilled that today's program is presented in partnership with the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. I'd like to thank Stephen Ruckman and his team for this great collaboration. This is the second in what we all hope will be an ongoing series exploring the future of American democracy. And now it is a great pleasure to introduce our dream team of panelists. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She is an SNF Agora Senior Fellow and Associate Professor of the Practice at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where she co-directs LSE Arena. She's the author of many books, including most recently, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Democracy authoritarianism. David French is senior editor for The Dispatch and was formerly a senior writer for National Review. His newest book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Charles Kessler is the dengler Dikeema Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College and a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. His forthcoming book is Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness, which will be out in January. And Yasha Monk is Associate Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University, where he holds appointments in both the School of Advanced International Studies and the Agora Institute. He is the author of, uh, most recently, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Welcome, all of our panelists, and let's begin with you. You describe in your book about the twilight of democracy the scene at the last inauguration of President Trump, and you express your amazement at his misrepresenting the size of the inaugural speech. But you said that by the point was to encourage his followers to engage, or at least part of the time, with an alternative reality and make them complicit in a sort of conspiracy against facts. I'd love your thoughts about the current refusal of the president to concede the election and his determination to challenge the election results in court. Is this an example of a normal resort to the legal process or is it an example of the authoritarian turn that you describe in your book? Uh,
1: Thanks, Jeff, for that question. I would actually begin my explanation of what Trump is doing right now a little bit even further back, which is remember how he first entered the political arena. That was as an advocate of birtherism, namely the view that Barack Obama was an illegitimate president. Um, He has been from the very beginning of his political career, um, both using America's lack of faith in its institutions and its democratic systems, and also expanding that, that lack of faith and increasing that distrust further. Um, What's really remarkable about what's going on right now is the degree to which it was so carefully planned in advance. I mean, in fact, the president has been telling us for months now that he won't respect the result of the election unless he's the victor. Um, He had been planning for months. He'd been working with the Pennsylvania Republican Party to make sure that counting of votes began not in advance so that we would have a result um, on the Tuesday of Election Day, but rather so that it would take much time, so that it would give him... Time to seek to undermine um, the result. Um, what he's doing is, I think, you know, in, in, uh, we're, we're witnessing on the one hand a kind of Hail Mary pass. You know, I do believe it is a last attempt to try and reverse the result and find a way to stay in power. Um, but I think in the second, if, if, even if that fails, um, which I do think it will right now, unless something else changes, I think what we're watching is him seeking to create an alternative political movement, a grouping of people um, who have a profound grievance, who believe that the election was stolen, um, who will continue to follow him and respond to him, um, a group that he can use for commercial, political, um, psychological purposes. He can continue to exploit them. He can continue to raise money off of them. And above all, he can continue to use them as a tool in American politics um, to continue to undermine um, the Joe Biden presidency, to try and illustrate, to, 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 to make it a failed presidency, um, and, and to use that political power in support of people, people or causes. So while this range of frivolous lawsuits is not illegal, it is profoundly damaging. Um, it is profoundly damaging to the trust that Americans have in their political system and in their voting system, and that's not an accident.
0: Charles, in your piece in the New York Times, Breaking Norms Will Renew Democracy, Not Ruin It, you argued that although hardly a day goes by without President Trump being accused of breaking a presidential norm or two, most of these alleged transgressions are Un, for example, choosing a list of potential Supreme Court nominees prepared by outside experts. And you argue that not all norms are created equal. First of all, is this a breaking of a norm, refusing to uh, concede and congratulate the victor? And is it serious or pecayune?
2: Well, I don't think it, it can really be argued that this is a, is breaking a norm, considering uh, how the 2000 election played out uh, and the resort to um, lawyers and to courts uh, in Florida in 2000. Um or the persistent rumors and reports that the 1960 election may have been stolen from Richard Nixon in, in Illinois, in Chicago, uh, and in Texas. Um, but Nixon declined to pursue it. Uh, there was a Cold War going on, and one can understand why discretion may have been the better part of valor there. Um, there isn't a Cold War going on now. I think President Trump is completely within his rights to go to the courts and attempt to find out what happened uh, in Philadelphia, not far from the National Constitution Center, I suppose, um, and in other places in the country where uh, strong democratic machines may have uh, put their thumb on the scale. Um, if, uh, if the courts find that there's nothing uh, to worry about, if the courts decide that even if there is something to worry about, there's no remedy, then the lawsuits will go away. Uh, the norm will have been, uh, I would say, renewed rather than uh, destroyed or uh, decayed. Uh, and the president, in that case, will leave the White House, and uh, President Biden will enter it. I don't see that there any anything untoward is likely to happen here.
0: Yasha, in a piece published on November second, called "Don't Panic," you say to my own astonishment, I'm now one of the more optimistic voices in the room, and you say that even if Biden wins, the next weeks will be scary and turbulent, but you express confidence that although Trump may try to declare himself the victor and is almost certain to claim that millions of votes were cast illegally Although Trump can sow chaos in the coming weeks, he doesn't have nearly enough control over the country's institutions, especially outside the executive, to stay in office after losing the vote. Uh, You know, a week or so later, do you still feel that way? And are you concerned about uh, any of the norms that might emerge from this transition period?
3: Well, I'm certainly concerned about that. And and I was concerned from the beginning about the effect it would have if Trump seemed eminently predictable would, you know, spread conspiracy theories about the election and outright lie about um, uh, you know, our democratic process. Um, but what I argued 10 days ago before the election was that there was a lot of irresponsible predictions that we're going to have a civil war in our streets. Um, and I think a little bit of hyperventilating about Donald Trump somehow being able to stay in office, uh, by dint of not accepting the outcome of a legitimate election. Um, I think so far both of those points have been vindicated. Um, We have seen joy celebration in Washington, D.C. and other places in in the country. We've obviously also had, you know, 70 million Americans who were sad about the outcome of the election. But we have not seen any violent clashes in the streets. Um, uh, We have not seen, uh, you know, any violence in the streets in the last nine days. Um, It is imaginable that we come to some kind of decisional crisis point in the next weeks or months where that changes. But for now, I don't see any particular indication of that. Um, Similarly, you know, my prediction that Donald Trump would refuse to accept the outcome of the election as legitimate has very predictably come to be true. Everybody knew that that was likely, but actually the institutions are holding. So uh, Donald Trump is, you know, pursuing all kinds of legal avenues. So far, uh, the courts and the judges um, have uh, rightly um, rejected most of these as frivolous. And this includes, you know, courts like the Supreme Court of Texas, which refused to uh, lawsuit by the state Republican Party before the election that wanted to throw out about 100,000 votes because they were supposedly cast and at voting stations that didn't confirm to the rules. Um, this was unanimously rejected by nine judges uh, nominated by the Republican Party it then went to a deeply conservative federal judge uh, who also rejected that. So I'm very confident that the 46th president of the United States will take office at noon on January 20th, 2021. I do fear about the way in which Trump will have managed to delegitimize that president in the eyes of many Americans. I certainly disagree with Charles that this is somehow within the norms of uh, the history of the United States. It's perfectly appropriate for a president to pursue legal avenues. I have no particular problem with him doing that. But uh, his, his, his lawsuits are part and partial of a uh, campaign of lies and conspiracy theories that are aimed at undermining the faith in democracy among the American population itself, that are aimed at pretending that there are millions of votes illegally cast, um, uh, that the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia is somehow in on a conspiracy uh, to defeat Republicans and Donald Trump. I think pretending that this is within the normal traditions of American politics uh, is frankly surprising to me. Uh,
0: David French, I think you are unique in this panel and, and- perhaps one of the only panelists who's very uh, happy with the election results. You said before the election that you hoped that President Trump would lose and that Republicans would keep the Senate. I want to ask you about a recent report in Politico that 70% of Republicans do not believe that the election was free and fair. Based on your book, Divided We Fall, what light can you cast on why there is such a dissonance in the way Republicans and Democrats view the fairness of the election? And what consequence will that have for the future?
4: Well, you know, what we're in the grips of right now is a, a phenomenon called negative partisanship. And, and what negative partisanship means is essentially that uh, you may be a Republican not so much because you love the Republican Party or its ideas, but because. You despise or you fear the opposing party. And whatever your candidate's flaws are, your candidate has one great quality. He's not the other guy. So you have this negative partisanship laying on top of an enormous amount of distrust in institutions. And then you also have laying on top of that institutions that do quite well financially, for example, sowing and fomenting distrust, whether it's merited or not merited. And I think what we're beginning to see, especially in the conservative media right now, is an avalanche of misinformation, just an avalanche. So for example, you know, a comparison of what is happening, right? When we talk about does Trump have a right to pursue lawsuits? Yes, he has a right to pursue lawsuits, but what a responsible media then does is to talk about the merits of those lawsuits and the prospects of those lawsuits overturning the result. And the lawsuits are, if you look from the factual allegations to the legal claims to the request for relief, up and down the line are borderline frivolous, sometimes at best, and outright frivolous at worst. Uh, and in fact, you know the Bush v. Gore comparison is completely wrong. In Bush v. Gore, the outcome of the Gore litiga- election litigation could tilt the whole election. In this circumstance, Trump could win in Philadelphia entirely. See, stop the certification of votes in Philadelphia in, in, in Pennsylvania, and it won't affect the outcome of the election. Uh, he's still going to lose. And so what we're seeing here is a series of lawsuits brought across the country that have no merit and no ability to change the outcome of the election. And yet conservative media is dutifully saying again and again, well, there's lawsuits pending. We have to see how the lawsuits will come out, which gives millions of people the idea that these lawsuits can come out in a way that would make Donald Trump president of the united states they cannot they will not you can say on the one hand trump has a right to file lawsuits and on the other hand level be honest with people and say these lawsuits are not going to adjust the outcome these lawsuits are frivolous instead you don't get that you get the bush v gore comparisons which are completely uh, different from this particular election and in, in the claims and issue in this election instead you get constant rumor mongering about vote fraud constant you know you had Laura Ingram yesterday with somebody with their voice changed delivering a, you know a really an unverifiable account of vote fraud that even if it wasn't even if it was true wouldn't adjust the outcome of the election yes donald trump has a right to go to court no senator can stop him from that by saying this that Joe Biden is president-elect. No talk show host can stop him from that by saying that Joe Biden is president-elect. None of them can stop him from availing himself of these legal options. But what they can at least do is be honest, and they're not being honest, and that furthers this negative polarization. It lines their pocketbooks, frankly, and it makes Americans distrust and despise each other even
0: more. And you wrote a series of such illuminating pieces over the past four years arguing that President Trump was part of a global tendency toward autocracy uh, that we saw in other countries, including Hungary. And you most recently, uh, in, in The Atlantic, compared two East German communist leaders, Wolfgang Leonhard and Marcus Wolff, with Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham, and talked about how people with very different backgrounds might make very different choices about whether or not to support an authoritarian leader. As you review the legacy of the past four years, if we assume that uh, President Trump is indeed succeeded by Joe Biden, which of the tendencies toward authoritarianism that you have been writing about for the past four years will endure and remain during a Biden presidency?
1: Thanks, Jeff. So the the point of that piece was it was an attempt to explain why the Republican Party, um, uh, with its historical attachment to a very clear set of values, um, ranging from concern about the president's character to um, a commitment to um, the promotion of democracy around the world to a belief in um, markets and and different kinds of freedoms. Why um, the Republican party at the very highest level, by the way, I'm not talking about voters, Um, I'm talking about the Senate and to some extent the cabinet, why did um, that group of small, that small elite group of people not stand up to Donald Trump as he began breaking one by one um, not just norms, but in some cases, laws that had, you know long applied to the presidency and to to his office? So just for a refresher, you know, this is an administration that um, ignored, its obligation to testify before Congress. This is a president who abused power, so he, he used uh, tools of American foreign policy, including military aid to a foreign country, in order to blackmail a foreign leader into conducting a false investigation into his rival, uh, an entirely false. Uh, he used the Secret Service to channel money to his personal companies. His family worked in the White House and failed to meet conflict of interest standards, you know, and so on and on and on and on. And so why then did the Republican Party not stop him? Why wasn't he blocked in the Senate? Why wasn't he impeached? Why didn't the cabinet find a way to block him? And the answer, I'm afraid, is that the Republican Party is no longer committed to the ideals of liberal democracy that it was historically promoted. Um, it's a party that is now, um, as, you know, as as all four of us have just agreed, it's a party that is now willing to use conspiracy theory and lies directed at its voters and its supporters. It seeks to undermine people's faith in the electoral process and in the system. And one by one, we've seen Republican leaders, you know, rather than standing up for the values and standing up for the traditions of the society, uh, letting them go, sl- making excuses. Um, allowing them to slide um, in the name of other things, in the name of personal power, in some cases, as David said, in the name of, you know, their profound hatred for the other side. And this is a real change in, in our political system. And it is parallel to a change that we can see in other countries. I live through a similar kind of change here. I'm, I'm in Poland right now. I'm speaking to you. And the right wing party here that was once a center right party is also now an authoritarian Populist Party, um, you can see the same kind of pattern in other countries all around the world. It's important that people understand that there's not a binary moment. It's not as if, you know, Donald Trump is a dictator or he's normal. There are small steps along the way. Um, There are accommodations that people make. There are situations that people get used to. There are circumstances that people would once have objected to that they now ignore. And we've seen this slow erosion of norms and of laws Um, and of types of behavior um, over the past four years. And it has been facilitated, unfortunately, by one party.
0: Charles, Anne just said that the GOP is no longer committed to the ideals of liberal democracy. In your forthcoming book, Two Constitutions, I think you you make a different argument and say, in fact, the Republican Party is committed to the founders' constitution, whereas uh, progressives have abandon it. Anne also said that all of you agree that the Republicans use falsehoods in the name of personal power and hatred of the other side. Perhaps you disagree with that point, too. So please share with our viewers why you believe that the GOP, far from abandoning the ideals of liberal democracy, remains committed to them.
2: Well, <clears throat> I do disagree, of course, with almost everything Anne has said. And I think her reaction, which she shares, of course, with many other people, is uh, arises from the fact that there really is a substantive... Uh, a deep substantive disagreement in the American public about what the constitution means and as it were, which constitution we're supposed to be living under. Um, One that is the constitution of modern progressivism and modern government, which really is the constitution of the living constitution as the lawyers call it versus the Republican view, uh, very imperfectly pursued, I have to say, that the the constitution of 1787, the constitution that presumably the national constitution center enshrines, the constitution of natural right and limited government uh, is authoritative and still controlling. And so much of what uh, is dismissed as shattered norms lying around Washington are shattered norms of liberal or progressive governance, the Trump uh, is a rough character. He's an amateur politician. He is a, a basically a, a businessman. But he's not and never was a Caesar figure, I don't think. You know, Cicero said Caesar was consumed by libido dominandi, the lust for dominance or power. Um, I don't think Trump is that kind of a politician. He wants to make America great again, which means he thinks America was great. Liberals and progressives today rather disagree with that. They don't think America has ever been that great or ever probably will be that great. But if so, only by moving farther and farther away from sort of uh, constitutional norms. Um, The the um, uh, in foreign policy, as in domestic policy, I think what you see in Trump is really a return to Republican norms, Republican Party norms, which were. Altered and updated, you might say, by the necessities of the Cold War. As the Cold War has faded, you're seeing a regression to the mean in the Republican Party, which Trump is not the cause of, but merely an example of. And so the old Republicanism, which stood for a much more modest foreign policy, for limits uh, on immigration, gauging immigration by the capacity to Americanize the immigrants, uh, limited. Taxes, constitutional conservatism, constitutional limits on the legislature, all of these things, including tariffs and a more trade policy and a national economic policy driven by national interest. All of this is very traditional in the Republican Party. And what you're seeing, uh, despite the excited cries of Anne and others, is to me really not that threatening except it is threatening to the uh, uh, the Washington consensus, both in domestic and foreign policy, as it has existed for the past generation, at least.
0: Yasha, we have two very different conceptions of reality and of the American Constitution, uh, both in America and on this panel. And appropriately enough, you wrote a piece in 2019, Republicans Don't Understand Democrats and Democrats Don't Understand Republicans, talking about that perception gap that makes both sides unable to empathize with each other. How do you reconcile the argument that Charles just made, namely that Republicans are resurrecting the original constitution against unprincipled assaults by progressives, and arguments like the one that you made repeatedly over the past four years, including in 2016, where you talked about the interlocking reasons why our confidence in the system is naive and ways that our system of checks and balances has relatively few resources to stop an authoritarian president from violating the constitution. So, like the hard question I'm asking you because it's so important is, you know, first how do you reconcile the completely different views, the one that Charles and you and have articulated, and how would you bridge this gap for our viewers?
3: Well, look, I think I would distinguish between two very different things. I think there's some um, high level obfuscation going on here. So, one is that. Undoubtedly, Democrats and Republicans have trouble understanding each other. There's some very interesting public opinion research by and Common and others that essentially show that when you ask Democrats what kind of beliefs Republicans have, you know, they caricature. They think that Republicans all hate immigrants, uh, that they don't think that there's any racial discrimination in the country and so on. And actually, most Republicans have very positive attitudes towards immigrants, For we might want to change our immigration system. And, and perfectly recognize that there are ongoing forms of racial injustice. And the other way around, we ask Republicans about what kind of views Democrats have. You know, they would think that they're also sort of Antifa supporters who make excuses for political violence and um, aren't proud to be American, for example. And actually, a huge majority of Democrats say that they're proud to be American and reject things like Antifa. So. Um, So there is definitely sort of this mutual incomprehension going on. And that also exists at a more philosophical level. So I don't disagree with Charles, that there's different notions of a constitution um, that drive each side and that leads to certain misunderstandings and disagreements. I think one example of this was when Senator Mike Lee of Utah said uh, that, in fact, America is not aiming to be a democracy, it's a republic. You can have different views about how helpful or clever a point that is, but it was spun by a lot of left leaning media as uh, senator lee sort of openly admitting that he's anti-democratic that he wants to destroy the electoral system or something like that though simply a misunderstanding of what he had said um, uh, and i think is absolutely an example of, of of that kind of clash between different readings of the constitution and, and different vocabulary leading to a little bit of hyperventilation so i don't disagree with it that exists now what's very important to point out though is that as Anne has said, what Donald Trump has been up to for the last four years and what he has been up to in these past weeks should be a crying affront to either of those two conceptions of a constitution. Whether you believe we live in a democracy or in a democratic republic, whether you think that the anti-democratic or the counter-majoritarian elements of a constitution like the Senate are perfectly appropriate, or whether you think that's problematic. Either way, you should believe in a peaceful transfer of power. Either way, you should believe that it's very important not to gratuitously undermine the trust that people have in um, the electoral system. Either way, you should think that a sitting president should not say that there was massive voter fraud without being able to offer any kind of evidence uh, for that thesis. Either way, you should say that a president going on about how his opponents should be locked up or are committing crimes in an unsubstantiated way is exactly the kind of behavior that had doomed all uh, republics that had been attempted before the foundation of ours and that the founding fathers were so worried about um, when they wrote not just a constitution, but when we modeled a set of behaviors and a set of norms um, that they hoped uh, would put us on a more stable path. So, So, yes, we have different notions of a constitution we're operating with. Yes, there's a lot of mutual uh, incomprehension, but to spin that into an excuse for the kind of behavior we have seen from the outgoing president of the last week's um, takes uh, a little bit of chutzpah.
0: David, as uh, someone who favors a GOP Senate but opposes President Trump, you're perhaps uniquely well-situated to help translate each side to the other. So put us in the shoes of the 70% of Republicans who believe that the election was rigged, and also the Republican senators who are supporting the president's claim. And and then as you think about the way forward, I am always struck by how difficult it is to persuade people who disagree with you about policy. At the same time, it is possible to have civil debates about the meaning of the Constitution, as, as we find every day at the Constitution Center when we host precisely these debates between liberals and conservatives. Is that one way that both sides can... Debate productively, basically not not just setting the policy disagreements aside and focusing on the constitutional disagreements. Or do you have other suggestions for productive discussion moving forward?
4: Well, it's it's frankly hard. Um, it's as a practical basis on a mass scale, it's really hard. You know, through the big sort, we increasingly live around people of like mind. As we live around people of like mind, we reinforce our own biases and we grow more extreme. We channel our interests into the media that reinforces all of those trends. So, you know, the way I have put it to people who, you know, I live in a, a precinct that went almost 70% for for Trump. And I think in the last, in, in 2016, I, I lived in a more rural precinct and it went 72% for Trump. My friends, my neighbors, they support Trump. And one thing that I say to an awful lot of people who say, why are they... They often tend to be Christian conservatives, constitutionalists to the extent that they really think that much about the Constitution and kind of the way that Charles describes. And they say, "But what about all of these things that Trump has done?" Well, they don't believe that Trump did them. (laughs) You know, this is one thing that I think is really important to to lay out is that if you consumed the media that the large majority of Trump supporters consume. And that was your source. And these were people and figures you had trusted for years. The odds of you being a Trump supporter go way high. Because in the telling of this narrative, Trump is a guy who's rude. He's just rude. But he has been persecuted. And we don't like him to be rude, or maybe sometimes we do because they deserve it. But he's got a style problem. And the opponents, though, the, his opponents have the substance problem. And his opponents are also deceitful and malicious and have tried to, various coups to destroy the Trump administration. And so when that is the narrative, that Trump's flaw is one if he just tweets too much, and the flaw of the opposition is that they're deceitful, they're malicious, they're radical, then you begin to see why all of this, why there would be 71 million people who would turn out for Donald Trump. The problem that you have, though, is that this coherent ideological support for Trump that Charles talks about, I just don't think exists. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who have been trying to put a frame, an ideological frame around Trump and Trumpism, when Trumpism is quite literally the political ambition of one man. And what ends up happening is they identify with him and support him in all that he does. So- If he passes a very Reagan-Ryan-like corporate tax cut, yes. If he appoints classical liberal judges and justices, uh, the same kinds of judges and justices that any Republican would appoint, yes. If he does a trade war that other Republicans wouldn't do, yes. If he says he's going to get out of foreign wars, yes. If he increases American military involvement overseas, yes. Whatever Trump does, the answer is yes. And that's what you see every day in the world of conservative media. And one of the things that Yasha is, uh, I think, accurate about is you can have the ideological discussion that in differences in constitutional jurisprudence that Charles is talking about, you don't have to locate it behind a person and advance it through a person who's malicious, who's cruel, who's grotesquely incompetent, and who lies to the American people. You don't need that vehicle for constitutionalism. And that's where I located, for example, my support for a GOP Senate, where for all their flaws, they're not Donald Trump, and they were more likely to advance policies that I agree with. But through Donald Trump, I don't want or need Donald Trump as an avatar of constitutionalism, because he's not. He's an avatar of his own ambition.
0: And Craig Dimitri asks, uh, in light of how most of Trump's GOP allies are refusing to acknowledge President-elect Biden's clear victory as of Saturday. How do you think history will judge them in light of your recent Atlantic article, history will judge the complicit? And then I want to broaden that important question out to this question. If, if David is right that loyalty to President Trump is, is personal, will the authoritarian drift that you describe disappear once Trump leaves office, or will the GOP remain structurally committed to it and will it continue as a threat and force in American politics?
1: So one of the things I've been wrestling with and which I don't yet know what I think about um, is precisely the point David just brought up, which is namely, is there such a thing as Trumpism without Trump, given that actually in practice in office, everything that Trump did was in his own personal, financial or political interest and not in the interests of America, not in the interest of the Republican Party, not in the interest of anyone else, what does it mean to have Trumpism without him? What could that be? And what I do fear it might be is that um, the Republican Party has learned from him that rules can be broken, that lies can be got away with, that large parts of the population, millions and millions of people can be misled um, using the echo chamber of Fox and, and, and other media um, using social media, but, but, but not only. Um, and that they will then attempt to use that knowledge that they now have to go on to break other rules or perhaps to produce somebody who's even more dangerous. And so what I worry is that in retrospect, we will look back on this week, this week when, you know, the secretary of state, the, you know, leading senators Refuse to acknowledge the results of an American election, Refuse to acknowledge it as the beginning of a downward slope, the beginning of a slippery slope that
0: could lead us to somewhere worse. Charles, we have Joy Pollock who asked, if you believe the American Constitution limits power on the legislative branch, explain your reasoning that there's not the same limitation on the power of the executive. This is certainly relevant in light of the fact that President Biden, if he is inaugurated, will rule by executive order, much as President Trump did. And then uh, Joanne and Jay Cranis ask, what happened to Pat Moynihan's comment that one is entitled to his or her opinion, but not his or her own facts?
2: Well, the facts are often in dispute. You know, facts and values uh, uh, interweave with each other. I don't believe in the radical separation of facts and values. (coughs) Values are a kind of fact Uh, And and, uh, facts reflect values. The questions you ask shape the answers that you are looking for, obviously. But I would say the executive orders is a good point here. Uh, I mean, Trump has done all he can by a series of inventive and aggressive executive orders. He has not written law uh, in his own name. He has, you know, the constitutional uh, checks uh, are operational when Joe Biden takes office, as I expect he will, um, he will undo all of those executive orders and issue equal and opposite ones in a different policy direction. Um, The Constitution will be intact, the political system will be intact, the the essential norms will be intact. And in the meantime, you know, the president who is presented as an ogre uh, and a would-be despot has been under investigation and one can only say relentless assault by the media by the whole establishment of American politics and including a lot of never Trump Republicans as well in the in the Russia investigations the in the impeachment um, the constant media scrutiny uh, that he has been uh, subjected to and so forth all of which is par for the course as it were because he is, Pursuing policy goals that raise the ire of a great many people in the uh, establishment. But it seems to me that, you know, in terms of real, where is the real illiberalism in America? It is on the campus left, the academic left, which increasingly influences the mainstream Democratic Party. We're going to see a very interesting fight within the Biden administration over just how woke. It's going to be just how many conservative spokesmen, how many academics, how many bureaucrats um, will be listed on the list of proscriptions that the liberals wish to enact against conservatives. It seems to me that, you know, if you're looking for people who've lost their jobs because they're insufficiently woke, you could start with the New York Times. There is a kind of really radical anti free speech groupthink. Liberalism, which has spread from the campus to parts of the Democratic Party, not all of it, but it is increasingly setting the agenda for that party. If President Trump is anything, he is politically incorrect. And he opposes the, this kind of political correctness above all else, in a way. That's one of the reasons why he has won so much enthusiastic support from Americans uh, across the country. And despite the constant Charge that he's a racist. He has received more of the Hispanic vote and more of the Black vote than any recent Republican presidential candidate, growing his own numbers, even if in a losing cause this year. From where they were four years ago, Blacks and Hispanics find something admirable increasingly in this administration, which is not just you know it's this is not uh, a white supremacist in the sense in which the 1619 Project indicts the whole constitutional system and most Americans as being part of a giant white supremacist conspiracy. If you want a conspiracy theory uh, which is really being enforced, you have to look to the left, not to the right in this country.
0: Yasha, Charles just made a strong claim. He said, as you heard, that threats to classical liberalism come not just or only from the right, but from the left, the woke left, he called it, and he suggested that those will continue in a Biden administration. Your response to Charles's point and then looking forward, you argued in the Atlantic that it's true that to recover its citizens' loyalty, our democracy needs to curb the power of unelected elites who seek only to pad their influence and line their pockets. But it's also true that to protect its citizens' lives and promote their prosperity, our democracy needs institutions that are by their nature deeply elitist. This is, to my mind, the great dilemma that the United States will have to resolve if we're going to survive, uh, disaggregate in light of the election.
3: Uh, yeah, uh, well, let me let me start on the first point. Look, I've written extensively about some of the excesses of uh, what Charles calls political correctness. I'm not sure that's the right term, but it'll do for this purpose on the left. Um, I've written about David Shaw, a data analyst which who was fired because he pointed to an academic study by uh, the principal professor Omar Wasso about the political impact of riots in the 1960s. I've written about a Latino electrician in San Diego who was falsely accused of making a white supremacist gesture. He's completely apolitical and he's not white and yet was fired by San Diego Gas and Electric over those accusations. And I've written about the extent to which uh, a sort of orthodoxy is enforced in parts of the media in the United States. uh, And it's often an orthodoxy that actually is far away from the median opinion of Americans and even the median opinion of Democrats. And I think that's not just a disservice to the readers, it's actually a real disservice to the Democratic Party as well. Um, So I recognize elements of what Charles is saying, and I think we should take those seriously and we should fight against those, as indeed many people on the liberal left are doing. Uh, That's why I founded a new magazine called Persuasion uh, that is engaged in some of those debates. Now, I also want to emphasize that to dismiss on the one hand an actual refusal to accept legitimate outcomes of the elections and say, well, Donald Trump is not Caesar, so why worry about him? Uh, To ignore, for example, the fact that there's a form of cancel culture going on in the Department of Defense at the moment In which officials who are not personally loyal to Donald Trump, who refuse to do unconstitutional things when they are asked to do so, are summarily fired. To ignore all of those things, uh, while talking about uh, some of the undoubtedly existing accesses on the academic left or in the media, is to not put things in the proper perspective, I think. I am worried about some of the things Charles is talking about. I'm a lot more worried about an outgoing president who refuses to accept the legitimacy of the election and fire senior staff at the Pentagon uh, because they're not personally loyal to him. That seems to me, from a constitutional point of view, a much more concerning form of cancel culture. Um, To your larger point, I think you're right that there is a kind of technocratic dilemma that we face in the United States, but also in other countries around the world, in which um, an incredibly complicated economic system, an incredibly complicated governing system uh, requires real expertise to be governed. And so, one way to deal with that is the creation of institutions like the European Union. Another way is independent agencies. Um, uh, so, things like the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC in the United States, or the Environmental Protection Agency, and so on, which pass a lot of day to day regulations. And, uh, you know, I think, I, th- I think there's a real trade off here, where on the one hand, these agencies often do good work in actually making sure that there's no run on the banks, you know, that we ensure that children don't die of small particle pollution, Um, you know, a million difficult policy areas for which you need real expertise. On the other hand, it is true that as a result, there's now huge swaths of American life and the same can be said of life in other democracies, which are governed by rules which which don't have direct democratic legitimation and which certainly most citizens don't feel like they have any meaningful say or control over. Uh, you know, I think figuring out how to balance this technocratic dilemma, because we're never going to entirely solve it, is one of the big questions of the next decades. And 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 there's no easy answers to it, but, but it's one we should take seriously, including both the need for expertise and um, some of his rulemaking, and the very real extent to which it raises the danger of people saying, well, you've promised me a democracy, you've promised me a system in which we get to rule ourselves, you've promised me self-government. But actually, I don't feel any form of agency or the very important elements of my life.
0: David, I detect one important area of agreement among all four of you, and that is consensus that the classical liberal principle that free speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence uh, should be preserved and is crucial to the preservation of the liberal order. I know that you embrace that position because you defended it so heroically as head of FIRE and in your various uh, writings, what will ensure that principle going forward? I believe it has a majority, a supermajority, on the current Supreme Court. Are the courts enough to preserve the principle of classical free speech in the face of the strong social pressures on them, both the left and the right against it? Um, and if not, how can that principle be preserved in order to preserve the future of American democracy?
4: Yeah. So courts are necessary They're indispensable, they're not completely sufficient to preserve free speech. We have to have a legal regime of free speech, which we have. We have more protection for free speech right now by overwhelming majorities of the Supreme Court than we've had probably in the history of the United States as far as protection from government interference at every level of American government. That's a marvelous success. And it's a marvelous success that's come from left liberals and right liberals who have pursued a robust free speech jurisprudence, but it's not sufficient. You also have to have a culture that respects free speech. You have to have vital American cultural institutions that respect free speech. And this is where we're beginning to falter, to be honest. We have corporate environments. You've heard of of quote-unquote woke capitalism. You've got corporate environments. That will silence employees for or terminate employees for things that they say on privately in their own social media, even if they're relatively, you know, their mainstream ideas or thoughts. You have a sense that uh, in important liberal institutions that dissent from the consensus is inherently suspect and could place your job in danger. We've seen multiple, Yasha has written about this at length, that there is such a thing as cancel culture. But what we cannot do is say that there's a cancel culture on the left and the heroic Trump right fighting against cancel culture because the Trump right is infested with cancel culture, infested with it. I have experienced it firsthand, threats to defund institutions that I've been a part of. People have been denied jobs in the Trump administration merely for having retweeted me. You talk about bad tweets costing someone a career, merely retweeting just me. Who am I? has cost people jobs in the Trump administration, um, efforts to hound people off of social media, to intimidate people, to shame people. So what we're seeing is sort of a, a rise of a right that is justifying its existence by the existence of the illiberal left and has this argument about fight fire with fire, that we're going to do to you what you have done unto us. And that that's competing political correctnesses. That's not fighting political correctness is it's competing politically correct intolerant systems and so what we have to have is both on the left and on the right people have to defend classical liberalism and they critically have to defend it against their own people on their own side so to speak so if you're on the right and all you're doing is fighting left cancel culture you're not doing your job if you're on the right and there's cancel culture on the right you should be fighting that also. Because guess what? The left thrives on opposition from the right. The right thrives on opposition from the left. It has a greater difficulty dealing with that internal in-group opposition, and that's where it requires courageous people to stand up to people who are, quote unquote, on their own side or in their own tribe and to say, no, we have to protect a culture of free speech against threats from the right and against threats from the left.
0: Thank you very much for that galvanizing call to action, calling on both sides to defend classical liberal principles against threats from their own side. Very difficult, of course, in light of the tremendous pressures from social media that lead people to be shamed in just the ways that you described. And that suggests, just to sum up this part of the discussion, that if there are threats to liberal democracy, they come not only from particular leaders or even uh, erosions of governmental institutions, but from social media and its attendant pressures. We have time for just a few sentences of closing thoughts, and I'll leave it up to each of you to leave us with the thoughts you think best. Uh, So I'll just tee it up by asking, what have we learned from the past four years? And are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of liberal democracy? Anne, first one to you.
1: I think what we've learned, not just from the United States, but from other countries around the world, is that the... Solution and the answer to the kinds of culture wars that David was just talking about and this very profound polarization is very often not to join that polarization, but literally to change the subject, to get people to talk about things they can do together, whether it's, I don't know, building a road in your local town or whether it's finding a way to recreate public space, a public sphere on the internet. Um, finding a joint problem is the answer. One of the things that concerns me about the U.S. right now is that with what looks like we're going to have a a split government again and with it appearing to be again in the interest of the Republican Party to maintain polarization in order to keep its voters is that that kind of goal, which seems to be the goal of the Biden administration from everything that Joe Biden has said in the last three or four days, maintaining that is going to be extremely difficult.
0: Uh, Charles, your closing thoughts?
2: Yes, it's really, uh, it's the American people uh, who are responsible for divided government. I mean, divided government that is parceling out the Senate House and the presidency among two different parties at the same time is uh, the norm in American politics for more than 50 years, uh, almost uh, 60 years. In fact, if you go back to 1968, since that time, we've had about three three times as many years of divided government as of undivided government, which was never the American pattern before. So in a way, the 60s continue. We're caught in a culture war, which is a profound political-cultural war, and uh, we're sort of torn between two visions of America, two understandings of the purpose of America and of what constitutes America. And uh, that will require... A lot of statesmanship it seems to me to navigate because if the people won't make up their minds to entrust the future of constitutionalism to one party or the other then the two parties are going to have to coexist in some way and statesmen in both parties are going to have to come to terms with that and it's hard to do because at the same time of course they want to win and they want to win complete control. But every example since 1968 shows that the time in which one party has confided control of the whole government is usually two years at most. And therefore, every party feels a need to do as much as possible as quickly as possible in the first two years, which is usually a bad instinct constitutionally and um, politically. But I fully expect uh, President Trump to leave office uh, peacefully if the election results are certified as uh, valid, and I think they will be, uh, broadly speaking. Um, But the the message will survive the messenger in this case. And the fact that uh, the Republican Party running on more or less a Trump platform outperformed the president in many places, in many races, indicates to me that Trump's effects will continue, but they will be increasingly less personal and more generally political and ideological.
3: Yasha, your closing thoughts? I've been much more optimistic in the last weeks than most of my friends and colleagues. And I think the reason for that is that the pessimistic lessons over the last four or five years I've taken on board a while ago. So the pessimistic lessons are, first of all, that uh, modern America can elect a demagogue to be president. And that's very worrying. That hasn't been the case in American history for a very long stretch. Um, it, It has been the case in 2016. And that, I think, uh, should make us all concerned about what kind of politician on the right or for the matter on the left might get elected in, in future. The second point is that it is very clear that uh, a demagogo for a tyrant populist can indeed damage American democratic institutions in a serious way. There's a lot of people in 2016 who said, oh, the constitutions will completely contain Trump, there won't be any serious damage to to our governing system because of the genius of the founders. So I love and revere the Constitution and love the Constitution Center in part for that reason. Um, you know, I think that's a misunderstanding of what kind of tool the Constitution is. It's a tool that has to be defended by people. Um, and when the people who are in high power don't have constitutional values, uh, when they think that any division of power or suppression of power is somehow a personal affront to them, and Whenever somebody wants to limit what they can do, they just need to be swept aside. Um, the Constitution won't guarantee the survival of American democracy. And so I think the last four years have reminded us of how high the stakes are. Now, I do also think, this is the optimistic lesson, that first of all, uh, Americans are philosophically liberal by instinct, but further, they sometimes vote for illiberal causes and candidates. Uh, they actually see the damage that does and are able to correct course. as in my mind, they have Uh, last Tuesday. Uh, And secondly, that American institutions are pretty resilient, but it takes time and it takes a very talented political leader with a lot of discipline to destroy them sufficiently uh, to, for example, undermine a peaceful transition of power. So what we are seeing in my mind is an incredible stress test for American democracy, a needless and irresponsible stress test for American democracy. But I think we are also seeing the institutions holding up so far And relative to where I thought we could be at this point in time, when I was thinking about it four years ago, uh, that makes me uh, proud uh, of the constitution of American institutions and and cautiously optimistic about the future.
0: David, last word to you. Yeah, you know, America's always
4: been a place of partisan conflict. Um, But the partisan conflicts can be more or less dangerous. We're built to have disputes over tax rates. We're built to have disputes over gun rights and gun policy. We're built to have disputes over trade policy. Those are things that our system can handle. It was built from the ground up to handle that. What we have trouble with is when it is between reason and unreason, between truth and lies, between tolerance and intolerance. To a large degree, a lot of American partisan dispute now and a lot of our American cultural battles right now are not so much over this policy versus this policy. But it is over truth versus lies. It is over liberalism itself versus intentional illiberalism. These are things that are very primal. These are things that are very fundamental. And if you lose the battle against lies, if you lose the battle against authoritarianism, if you lose the battle against unreason, the consequences are far more severe than if you lose the battle over a particular trade policy or a particular tax rate. Or even things like, to how far does the First Amendment extend? Do you chip it this way or do you extend it that way? And that's increasingly what it seems like we're fighting now, is this battle between truth versus lies, reason versus unreason, illiberalism versus authoritarianism. And I look forward, honestly, to the day when uh, hopefully that battle over liberalism versus Ill- illiberalism is over. And Yasha and I, who are great friends, can go back to arguing about gun policy. And and that will be a symbol that we've passed through what I think is a dangerous period in American
0: life. Thank you so much, Anne Applebaum, Charles Kessler, Yasha Monk, and David French, for an illuminating, a civil, and an inspiring discussion of the future of liberal democracy. Justice Louis Brandeis loved to quote the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together. And that is precisely what we've done in this illuminating discussion. We are so grateful to our co-hosts and friends at the SNF Agora Institute. Uh, This is the second in a series of conversations with SNF Agora that we hope will be ongoing. And we're so grateful to our panelists for having taught us so much. And friends, thank you for joining. Thank you for educating yourself about the constitution and hope to see everyone again soon. Thank you.
1: This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.